and welcome to The Education Debate, a podcast where we debate issues related to education and learning. My name is Ian and I'm joined by a group of hand-picked participants who have agreed to be part of the podcast and share their views with you. So let's have, by way of an introduction, um, let people know who you are and in order to do for listeners to get an insight into the sort of person you are, what is the most essential item that you would have in your classroom? Off you go. Hi, my name's Arthur. I'm a third year student on the five to 11 upper course. Um, For me, it's definitely having books and having a library in the classroom to promote a love of reading because it can affect so many other aspects of school life and all the other subjects as well. Uh, It can improve language and communication skills and I'd recommend that all the students on the course would go out to charity shops and use their Aspire grants to buy as many children's books as they can to fill their library with books. Uh, hi, I'm Tom. I'm a second year student, uh, primary education course. Um, my essential item to have in the classroom, um, I took the question to be my favourite item, and that would be uh, my guitar, because I enjoy musical, um, whether that's teaching music, or whether a lot of when I'm SE1, it was just leading short tasks or songs or fun activities in the breaks we had, um, lunch and other Uh, time throughout the day. Hi, my name's Katie and I'm a second year primary education student. My item to have in my classroom would be a a pack of playing cards because I think that they can be used in numerous different ways. I know for one, I've used them as a spoon before and that was great. Uh, My name's (laughs) (laughs) Katie. We need to hear more. Fixed a monkey table, I've done a bookmark. I, like if you bend it and make it a spoon because I forgot the spoon being for my yogurt. Wow. <laughs> and you thought I was weird. <laughs> <laughs> measure two, measure. Go for it, Kelly. Okay. Top uh, that. <laughs> uh, my name's Kerry, and the thing that I would have to have in my classroom, I have to have pens and paper everywhere so that I am always able to write things down so I can use it for uh, monitoring children, but also for myself. I know I really benefit from seeing things written down, and I know children do as well. Hi. I'm Peter, I'm a tutor on the primary education course. I think in my current role, my essential item is my clicker. Because one thing I can't stand is having to be in one place for a whole talk session. I'm a wanderer and that allows me to wander and talk as I wander. Fantastic. Sorry, I'm just still reeling over <laughs> <laughs> playing cards and spoons. I think it's fantastic. So before we get on to the main topic of today's podcast, which is all about technology, so which is something that I'm really looking forward to hearing your opinion. About. Let's take a brief stroll through various news items and that attracted my attention from the past month and see what we think about them. So the first one up is about parents being concerned about the cost of school. Um, many parents, and in the bbc.co.uk um, article, 76% in England, Wales and Northern Ireland say that the cost of sending their children to school is <coughs> rising. The annual um, charity's annual survey found that most most parents, 51% of them, um, out of 1,500 parents polled, said that the cost of uniform was the most common concern, followed by school trips and school meals. And amazingly, two fifths of parents had been asked to donate to the school fund this year. So, what do we think? Uh, off the um, topic last week when we talked about just learning <coughs> costs what do we think about this increased cost being sent to parents well last week um, of course we talked about school funding generally mm. um, I don't know how many listeners are still with us since then I'm hoping <laughs> that we've increased um, however perhaps we are beginning to see the effects of school funding and the cutbacks beginning to affect inside the classroom and schools are beginning to say, look, we need some donations to help with uniforms, school trips, meals. And parents are now having to say, right, well, we better make a donation. Perhaps they're feeling a bit more pressure on them to help out. So perhaps we are beginning to see that effect. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with schools being asked, with schools asking parents to donate. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I think that you can't be, they can't be pressured into doing so. I don't think it should be held against them, but I think you know, some parents may want to donate to the, to the school if they think it may benefit I their children. I think it should be the, 
the parent's choice to come forward rather than the school's going to the parent asking for money. I'm, I'm going to disagree with you, Katie. Um, having been a parent who, for the lifetime of his children at high school, which I believe was a high school that you went to, um, <laughs> great, great school, great school, yes. no pay for the school, but I thought for that that would probably be about nine years, I flatly refused to make any contribution to the school. To be fair, I think my parents did as well. Um, um, so you were the ones. <laughs> which, which wasn't the case of couldn't afford. I think there's an element of if a system needs funding, it shouldn't be parent donations that are propping up a system. True. That, that would suggest the system is broken and something more sustainable than asking parents to do that. So is there no spirit of goodwill that could be uh, used just to help fund, say, an extra school trip here that could perhaps benefit the pupils? I mean, I've always worked very closely with PTAs and have supported fundraising for PTAs. The way I work with PTAs, I think that's different. The way I work with PTAs as a teacher and as a head teacher was, I would give the PTA three, four, five projects and then say, look, we absolutely value your fundraising. You take one of those, but they wouldn't be bread and butter. Mm. They'd be, you know, something where the PTA could say, well, we bought that mm. rather than something donations that just go into the, 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 the sort of central yeah. bucket, mm. I think. Well, one of the big things that the article does talk about is it mentions repeatedly <coughs> about school trips. Mm. And that's one of the things that are considered at risk when there are funding issues. <coughs> but again, as following on from what you're saying in terms of it being an important aspect of mm. the, not so much curriculum, but of the time spent in school, that if those are the things that are going to get lost, is that not ultimately having an impact on learning? So I'd have to remove long pregnant pauses. I think so. And in one of my schools, that, that was something that the PTA raised funds for. It was mm. a central fund to supplement Mm -hmm. school trip because schools are not allowed to charge for school trip they can only ask for a voluntary donation <coughs> child, a child can't be excluded from a trip on the basis of not being able to pay mm -hmm. what a school can do they can reserve the right mm -hmm. to not run the trip if they don't get sufficient mm -hmm. contribution we're not just limiting ourselves though to um Things that could improve attainment, though, because if you look at, say, schools, um, the PTA, again, they may have a, a cake sale, and uh, children will come in, give £2, and that could go towards things like playground equipment. Hmm. And from my perspective, that can be a good thing, because it is having perhaps not an effect on the learning, but it is having an effect on their overall well-being in the school. The more of a school ethos. Yes, perhaps, yeah. That feeling of a community hmm. is certainly being valued through a shared contribution towards each other's well-being. I mean, I would have a very different view about sort of community school community based fundraising mm. and just outright asking parents for give us however much for not for, for nothing <coughs> See, I, I think it's what I think's wrong is you know the cost it says here the cost of uniforms were the most common concern at 46 percent mm. isn't that because quite a few schools are asking for the branded uniform oh, yeah, yeah. to be worn yeah. when I don't think that the school uniform should have to be branded if that's what's making it most expensive because for instance in your well-known supermarkets you can buy polo shirts for three pounds it doesn't have the school logo on but that's what some parents can afford so I think they shouldn't be asked to get the brand on if they can't afford it that's my yeah I, I think it's limit <coughs> certainly limit the amount that's branded I was talking mm. to somebody who's Charles just starts secondary school and every item of clothing is branded including mm. trousers and skirts and yeah and that that's that's I do think crazy. it's crazy that's more prevalent in secondary I know I've yeah. seen in a lot of primaries where they have made that shift now mm. that yeah. as long as it is in line with the colour scheme that they have then it doesn't need to be branded just as a, a, a separate point I know it's um, not related to what the school uh, the, what the school are actually buying but it relates to parents funding when it comes to charity events that the schools are doing because if you think about on clothes days parents are still uh, obliged to send their kid into school with a pound I mean it's perhaps not the same as saying look we need money for uniform but it is parallel in that you are asking parents to supply your students with money that will go towards a charity I mean it's, it's the same sort of issue because parents from more disadvantaged backgrounds have still got to stump up the money. I mean, is that any better than saying you should be paying money to fund uniform? Yes, it's better. Because it's having enough, because it's going to a charity. Yes, and, and, the, and, and the education system should be funded. Yeah. It should be funded by, <coughs> by government. I do wonder if we're if they're paying out so much money for uniform, whether or not... I remember in the dark and distant past, we didn't have a uniform at school, at <coughs> primary school. Never had any effect mm. at all and yet there seems to be a huge amount and I know there's certain schools that still don't have a uniform and you know I don't see any detrimental effects 
well, um, at all. The Sutton Trust have said that um, it doesn't increase uh, the amount of progress in learning by, mm. it doesn't add any more months, it doesn't take away any more months. However, they did say that it could have a positive impact on behaviour. So not just limit, limiting it to attainment, it could have a, a wider value to wider school life. Perhaps. And I'm going to take that link that's linking on to behaviour, move on to the next story, because, we, well, I know some of us in the podcast have experienced um, Ofsted. I'm sure the rest of you will do eventually. Um, but the new Ofsted <laughs> inspection arrangements are going to be focusing on the curriculum, on behaviour and development. And there's a, a huge push that inspections will focus on what children actually learn ahead or how they learn ahead of results so taking it away from what's happening at the end point more to the process and so to discourage this culture of teaching to the test and I wonder what your thoughts about that were positive really it's um, a change that's obviously important because we've all seen in schools whether it was when we were at school or on placement that you are being taught quite often to pass the test, which uh, which boxes to tick, which when we look at it as primary school <coughs> is for the year six sats ultimately. So the main subjects in maths and English get pushed for the, to the forefront. So there's moments on placement where kids were not allowed to do their art, music, mm. drama activities in the afternoon because they didn't get their poem or story written in the morning. So they had to stay in and weren't given the plethora of yeah. sort of options of the curriculum. I'm quite cynical uh, and I do wonder whether or not the focus will be on learning or they will look at results as an outcome of learning and say, <laughs> you know, whatever you're doing is not right because cause how would they know that the learning was effective or not without looking at some kind of data. Don't Ofsted don't want to see pictures in books anymore, do they? They don't want they're not bothered about seeing photos of activities. Well, I, from what I've heard, I might I, might I think, be wrong, I think but... what they're saying is they don't require to see that. I think there's yes. been there's been a lot of been a lot of stuff over the last few years of schools saying we need to do X, Y, and Z because of Ofsted or mm-hmm. of, this is what Ofsted want to see. I don't actually think Ofsted necessarily ever did want to see those but now Amanda Spearman has said quite explicitly we don't require to we don't require to see a particular level of marking a particular level of, of work in books or anything like that if a school chooses to do that that's up to them we will we will judge the effectiveness of it if they're not judging the effectiveness if they're not judging what's in books as much anymore and they're not judging what the <coughs> result of then they're trying not to look at results as much what what are they going to be judging like what are they going to do is it just going to be based on speaking to the children or because then surely that's there, there is a note and, and interestingly uh kerry kerry arthur and i were discussing this just last week and we were. Yeah, this is just um one one of the one of the notions that that is uh i was going to say surfacing and you'll see why that's ironic in a moment uh is the notion of a deep dive which is which is a phrase that's uh, g- gaining a lot of purchase now where ofsted will look at work they'll talk They'll, they'll look at documentation, they'll look at children's work, they'll talk with staff, they'll talk with children, they'll look at plans and focus on, on uh, a range of curriculum areas. And we'll dive down deep into that area to see what's going on. I, th- I think what's I, what I th- find encouraging in this is uh, the focus on a broad and balanced curriculum. Because mm, I think it's, uh, either inspections, have, I think inspections have been narrow, but I think more than that is the way that schools have interpreted what Ofsted mm. want and have yeah. narrowed their own curriculum. I don't think all of the blame lies with Ofsted. Mm. I think I think as as a, as an education system, we have to take responsibility that the way that we have responded has not been. We haven't taken the ownership that actually we did have. And I think part of the intention here is to give more ownership back to schools. I completely agree with you on that because I think too often Ofsted are given a bad press when in actual fact I think it's more the perception of them that could be the issue rather than what they're actually supposed to be doing and um, asking schools to be done. Because I think, as you say, it has been perhaps too narrowly focused on the end result and the tests and the SATs. And now I think it's up to teachers and schools to realise that now under this new framework, they are looking more broader and a wider curriculum. I would still say that they need to look at the tests 
in some way because that's still the ultimate kind mm. of measure which is level across the whole country to decide comparatively the schools because if you're just looking at mm. the approach to the learning every school is going to have a different approach that makes it very hard to compare yeah. what is better than this if they're completely different whereas test results or start and end sort of progression looking at data. But the test results will only show off said how academic the children are. It won't show you how happy the children are at that school. It won't show you how social they are, how well you could argue that happiness are. isn't up there as like mm. one of the most important but, things to uh, rate in a school. It's perhaps mm, learning. I'm not I'm not <laughs> saying that it should just be tests because what I was originally saying <clears> is it's very positive the move that they're making, but I think it still needs to be considered as and, part of it. I think there still will. I think there was. I think that those statutory outcomes will still be a significant indicator. They did only I, say there was there was a less focus on yeah. data rather mm. than than the no focus. Mm. On I, I think what has happened with that is is that because the range of subjects that is being tested by statute is very narrow, that has narrowed the curriculum. Mm. But now, if schools narrow the curriculum, they're going to have a very uncomfortable discussion with Ofsted. So mm. um, I'd, I'd hate to think that things happen in schools because of Ofsted mm. yeah. I think and that because I think that's partly where we hope where we got where we are but I'm, I'm hoping that this on a more positive that you know things like art and music and geography and, <laughs> and history and whatnot will will get a, a higher profile because of Ofsted well those ideas of perception so I was in a, a staff meeting the other week and there was a real worry amongst teachers about the fact that there wasn't so much of a focus upon concrete measurement. And they were having quite a, a detailed discussion with the head teacher about what does that mean actually for them? Because there has to be some, they were convinced there has to be something concrete in order to apply that four point grading system. Mm -hmm. And so the from this one example, it would seem that there's a, a slight difference in terms of how that information has been applied. <coughs> to teachers themselves rather than just yeah. the school. I, I, I wonder if as, as a profession we've kind of got slightly de-skilled and panic about showing impact and progress without a number, mm. without without a tangible measure. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the, these deep dives, I think, I think you know, if, 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 they're, if they're looking at art, I think, think inspectors will look at, you know, what was the quality of the art that was being produced in September? What's mm -hmm. the quality of the art that is now being produced? What's the quality of art from reception through to year six, are we, are we seeing a progression? This is going to make me sound ancient. It's kind of how we used to do it. Mm -hmm. But we, we haven't been used to sort of having to show progress in art and geography. Mm -hmm. I think that's that's one of the worries. It's, yeah, absolutely. Am yeah. I putting forward two painting? Or yes. <laughs> what, what, what is it that there yeah. has to be something that is... What came before forward. it and what's going after it rather yeah. than just a standalone yeah. lesson yeah. that's just here and now, yeah. this is what they're doing today. Mm -hmm. I really worry, and I'm just going to throw that, this out there, that I see this as a, an attempt of Ofsted to sort of like become more approachable, friendlier, listening to parents. We really want this broad and balanced curriculum. I think this would be fantastic. That's what we're going to look at. And I really worry that they might go into schools that have a broad and balanced curriculum and it's really positive, but then say, well, no, you're still a failing school and need special because your English results are not. <laughs> I, I feel it's almost like saying, we want you to have a broad balanced curriculum, but we don't want you to sacrifice anything else, you know, mm. as in adding English, maths and science. I think yeah. it's adding on to that as well. <clears throat> that they've, they've talked about how they are shortening the report. Part of that is to make it more uh, accessible for parents and a bit like you were saying, Katie, it's about them understanding what it's like to be a child at that school. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that's that sort of soft approach in some respects. Mm. Yeah, well, yeah, it's, it, when you say soft approach, it's more, I just think it's more of a... Holistic approach? Yeah, like a holistic approach, more of a sort of an approach that you that actually will mean something to the children as they grow up. As in, <laughs> measuring how happy a child is at school, I th how happy a child is at school, I think should be a big part of what they do, because... Mm. Uh, I, don't, like, I don't think I was ever happy at school. Can I just put that? <laughs> no, I mean, no, I'm, I'm sure lots of people wouldn't be. No, I'm sure lots of people wouldn't be, but then that should be looked into. I think it's going to take a long time for the profession to trust the process. Mm. Yeah, I, think, I, I, think, totally I think, agree. Yeah. yeah, I think the process mm. has been seen as antagonistic for such a long time. Mm. Mm. Um, I think that I think that that's going to take a long time to bed in. 
And of course, if Amanda's listening to this podcast, I'm sure we will have numerous questions to ask her if she would like to come on. <laughs> it would be excellent. Thank you very much. Now, I'm going to move us on to the last story, which I looked at and thought, well, is this really happening? And I have no idea of the mechanics that's going on, you know, what's actually happening here. It was called Playing Hide and Seek with Books. And Arthur gave an epic introduction about books, <laughs> uh, which was fun. And they, uh, apparently in Scotland, they have launched a new national book hunt scheme called Look for Book to encourage children to find, read and re-hide their favourite books. Books are hidden in communities using, excite- using the excitement of a treasure hunt and to nurture the love of reading. I'm not too sure how this is happening. I've got <laughs> visions of books falling out of trees onto children. But what do you think? I think it's a great idea. I mean, logistically, I have no idea how it's happening, like you say. I, but I, I think it's a good idea. I mean... The, the thing that really worried me was rehide. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, really a child finds a book, thinks it, but then rehides it. In the biscuit mm. island. It, yeah, but then we have no idea where that book That's is. That's true, yeah. And we're saying to the children the next day, where did you put that book? <laughs> no idea. I, I really like the idea of it, but what... And I, and I, I tried... Try to get onto the, the the Facebook page without joining it couldn't. But what I wasn't sure about was were, were there any was this just a random event? You happen to find a book or you don't. And I thought I really I really love the idea. But if if it could be associated with some kind of clues, because a treasure hunt isn't a random yes. event. No, it's and I fun. thought what a scope for geography. Yeah. <laughs> clues and and and, yeah. and then when you, when you hide it, you then have like, to like geocaching. Yeah, like mm. geocaching, and 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 I thought. That, that could have some that could have some real scope despite my opening which <coughs> promoted books as being the key point in the classroom I will have to say I am slightly skeptical about this because talking from our recent sessions on learning objectives and success criteria what we've been taught and what I think is the correct way is what are the children learning here and I think there is a danger that part of the learning objective is to go on a treasure hunt rather than to promote a love of reading books. So I'd be wary of how much the children are... I'm, I'm, no, I'm in no doubt that they're enjoying running around finding these books and saying, oh, look, I found one, and then opening it up, flicking through the pages quickly and then putting it back and then saying, like, let's go and find another one. So I'm a little bit sceptical of the process um, rather than the act. What's act Not everything has to have a learning objective, mm. though, does it? No, it doesn't necessarily, no, but... Um... I think it's quite clever calling it a treasure hunt because then it's implying that books are treasure and children Ooh, nice will treasure, yeah. treasure, won't they? They will, they will hold treasure special to them, so they're mm. going to hold that book special to them. They found it, it's theirs, it's their treasure. Mm. So you have to read it. Yeah, but it's, you've still found the treasure, haven't you? It was momentary treasure. And then momentary you go find another one. Do they get to keep these books then? I, I was... No, because no, you, you rehide them. Read it and hide yeah. it. Right. And then it's still sorry, like treasure. Is, sorry, is that not a library? I hate it. <laughs> 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 Listening to the person who set it up, part of it was about being out in the outdoors. Yeah. And that is definitely you know, one of the advantages because I do agree with you, there are some wider advantages of this. You are getting children outside more instead of sitting inside perhaps on technology. <laughs> I knew um, that was good. <laughs> I, I think, I think if, to, 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 to get the most out of it, I, I think if, if you can, something that's going to establish a process by which you follow something mm. to find a book rather mm. than you randomly come across it in Tesco's mm. in the... Yeah, because it is also... It's a sort of manufacturing interest, which that is only ever going to be short-lived, which is perfectly fine if it's a small process and it's promoting potentially promoting mm. an interesting reading but there's also an aspect of if somebody wants to read then they will and yeah. also if you find a book you're just finding a book you have no guarantee of that being anything interesting of it being anything that's even suited suited to you and reading is very personal mm. in the sense that mm. you know I, i'm interested what books they're putting out there you know yeah. is it sort of like books classics or is it like you know wonderful books like Philip Pullman or just a whole load of Harry Potter books scattered across Scotland. I often... (laughs) No, I'm not going to say that. (laughs) Some child grew up in the nest. Because it it commented that it was a national book hunt. And then I was thinking, is this a national book hunt only in Scotland? Which is only in Scotland at the moment. Yeah, Yeah. so I was somewhat bemused by the whole thing and hence why it got onto the reading or the show notes for this um, episode. Okay, let's move on. Let's talk about something that we've hinted at 
And already, because it's a sort of like um, title of this was Teachers and Technology, a perfect match or a disgruntled relationship. And it took me ages to think of that. So I'm definitely using it for the show notes. And so in April 2019, the, the Secretary of State, Damien Hines, wrote in a report titled Realising the Potential of Technology in Education. Technology is often associated with increased automation and reduced human interaction, although within the education sector, it will never replace the role of great teachers. However, I believe technology can be an effective tool to help reduce workload, increase efficiencies, engage students and communities and provide tools to support excellent teaching and raise student attainment. So what's your opinion of technology in the classroom? Is it a loving relationship, a perfect match or some kind of disgruntled relationship that actually exists? I think technology can be an effective tool. I'm not going to deny that it definitely can from what I've seen in the classroom. It can it is definitely worthwhile to use. <coughs> but it appears that we are seeming to march our children towards a trap which it does seem to be very difficult to escape. So I think technology can have this double-edged sword approach to it. It can open windows into different cultures so looking into lessons for example you can explore pictures up on the wall of like African tribes. However, it can often like shut them away from reality. Um, I, like, I'm gonna have to use a, a little, an example of my own, which isn't necessarily in schools, but I do think that as a society, we are becoming very distracted by technology. For example, on like buses, you look around and you just see people in their phones. And I think that, are we promoting that constantly and is it going to rub off on the children? So I think that overall that can have a negative effect because perhaps they're losing their ability to communicate with each other and this can be affecting aspects like their mental health. <laughs> I'm not sure we need to speak now. Uh, the way it sorry. Really <laughs> Do you know what one of my favourite cartoons um, that I see a lot about technology is this um, railway carriage <clears throat> with everybody looking down at their phones. And then the one from ages ago when there's the same, a similar train carriage with everybody looking in newspapers, mm. no communication mm. at all. And I'm a great, you know, I think technology is really positive and I wonder whether or not we are actually improving our communication skills. I, we're not communicating within our close networks, we are actually looking broader and further away. Whether or not that's having a positive imp um, impact on learning, that would be up to you to debate. I, I have an attitude to this which is both quite ranty, I could really go off on one, but also quite balanced. One, one of the questions that Ian posed as a thought provoker was about people harking back to times past and I think ev every every age has a golden age so people my age talk about you know the sort of mid late 70s early 80s as the golden age and at some point you folks will hark back to your golden age you know and, and kind of eye watchers will, will come back and be retro chic and that sort of thing you know? <laughs> um, I think I, 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 I agree with Arthur that, that I, I do think technology is having some detrimental impacts on face-to-face -face communication but I also agree with Ian that it's also opening up other kinds of communication. Mm. What really gets my goat is when people make assumptions either way. Technology will improve communication mm. or mm. technology destroys it. Now the, the, uh, the people I work with here who, who would who would lead to an immediate conclusion that technology is, is the destroyer of all communication. I, I, it does bewilder me when I see a group of people sitting not 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 as strangers on a train, yeah. but actually having coffee together mm. and they're all on the phone. That, that, yeah. that bewilders me. Um, but before we recorded, I, I was sharing, um, sharing around the table at an occasion where we had a family get-together and my sons, who met their cousins who they hadn't seen for years, and immediately launched into this in-depth conversation mm. about an online game on which they were collaborating. And another family member dismissed them as being sad because they were talking about computer games. Mm. That infuriates me. Because there, the technology, they, they weren't using technology to communicate, but the whole conversation was being sparked by that. So I, th I think the real danger is making an assumption that it's either or. Mm. Yeah. yeah, one of the two extremes. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I have a balanced view on it as well. I, in some ways, I think it's really good because um, I do think it can improve engagement. I think it encourages collaborative learning, for instance, um, you know, with apps such as Kahoot and Teams, etc. 
Although I do worry that it could put a strain on young children's <coughs> cognitive load. Because I think there's apparently children research suggests that children can only process about seven bits of information at a time. And I think because technology is so good, I think it can, they end up trying to process more than seven bits of information. Like it's sort of a cognitive overload in some cases. But like I said, that being said, I do think there are lots of pros, for instance, you know, life skills. Technology doesn't have to be the phone or an app. It can just be things like writing emails, maintaining proper online etiquette, which are all skills that are going to see children get jobs and succeed in jobs. See, on that one, I posed this question to somebody because I I wasn't particularly sure on what I did think on this. And they suggested a good question about, should we be teaching children to use a laptop or computer or a tablet? Now, we would probably view that you kind of need a computer laptop setup more because we see that we use this format a lot. However, newer bits of technology coming in are more tablet-based. I've had conversations with teachers Mm -hmm. before about how the children are really good at using a tablet. They're very good at being able to Mm -hmm. use all these skills that you need for that particular device. But if you ask them to type anything, it's not going to happen. But then I was also at a talk a year ago at which I was having a conversation and someone was talking about how we are having to preempt the technology that these children will be using when they go into the world of work. Now, that could be anything up to about 15 years from now. And if we think back 15 years in terms of what we have, that's a jump that we probably couldn't have imagined then. Or some people could, but it is quite a a long stretch. And to imagine what these children will need later in their life is a very big stretch. I think one of the difficulties with with technology is that as soon as you're up to date, you're out of date. And and I think that's that's not just an an old older person, older person, (laughs) more mature. <laughs> Older than some of you's perspective, I think that 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 it that is reality. I mean, I mean, I had I had an iPad and I, I don't use it anymore. And nearly everything I used to do on my iPad, I now do on my phone. Mm. My laptop doesn't get much use, but then there are some things mm. you you can't you can't replace. So I, I think it, it, that that keeping up is is really tricky. And I know when when uh, I was a head teacher, when 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 schools were were going lock, stock, and barrel on interactive whiteboards. But there was a there was a massive assumptions there. If we you know we spend thirty grand and put put interactive whiteboards throughout the school, bam, everything will be fantastic. Mm-hmm. And you know you then go and watch lessons where people basically use interactive whiteboard to write things, which yeah, uh, you can do an ordinary yeah. mm-hmm. even a blackboard you could do. That. So I, I think there's a lot of assumptions, and I think primary schools probably more than secondary schools do that. Let's let's jump on and let's go whole hog with this technology, and then it's very quickly out of date. I'm not sure what the answer to that is, mm. but but I, th- I think it's 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 a tricky one. I mean, I know I for one worry about keeping up with technology. Mm. Like, I do worry that I'll fall behind because I think, like you say, it moves so quickly that by the time you've got your head around it, <coughs> it you you want something new. Mm. And I always feel one step behind. I I do love technology, but I do always feel one step behind. And I think that is a worry that I think a few primary school teachers may may feel like that. Yeah. I think one one area, if we think it's sort of areas within the curriculum that's really positive about technology is stuff like the Raspberry Pis and areas like that where it's it's using technology to teach them the skills of, for example, coding and other things, which is something that even our generation never really did at school, but it's becoming sort of a fundamental skill that children now have to learn, which is amazing really because all the sort of quaternary jobs in research and computing and technology which is a growing industry um, it's really important that technology can be given to them at such a young age um, so they develop the basic skills even though we have said that it's changing I think the the fundamental skills of it stay the same generally it's just a <coughs> progression and evolution of it Te- technology shouldn't uh, just to uh, reinforce peter's comment that technology should never be seen as a silver bullet i.e mm-hmm. you know if you give technology to a bad teacher you have a bad teacher with technology yeah. mm-hmm. you don't suddenly have a good one but i i i wonder whether or not we are actually preparing children for the future, mm-hmm. whether or not we become very nostalgic in the sense that we think this is the best 
you know, best way to teach them. This is what they need to know. And our, we do not know what jobs are going to be around in 10, 15, 20 years time. We have no idea. And are we actually preparing the children for that world? Or are we preparing them for the world that we currently live in now? There's a, there's a commonly quoted statistic which has which is something around uh, at any one time children who start school as five-year-olds, 65% of them will work in jobs that don't exist when they start school. That statistic has been significantly challenged. The BBC more or less programme, which specialises in delving into statistics, looked into it and con concluded that was a third rather than 65%. But still a significant number of children starting school will work in something. And, and it, you know, if you, if you think back 15 years, there are many jobs now that just literally didn't exist. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think what Ian's saying there about prepare, one of the challenges is preparing children for a world that we, really, that we don't know, mm. almost doesn't exist is is scary <laughs> is, is, is it but i think that's that's why skills skills and and ways of thinking are, are, are around you know flexibility and adaptability and, and innovation those sorts of things are more use than than teaching children how to use an interactive whiteboard which yeah. is which is already kind of stone age mm -hmm. technology really isn't it it's uh it, it's really challenging i think though i think there's perhaps a bit of both Thomas' points and your points, Peter, that do meet in the middle because from what I can tell you're saying that um, the skills do carry on, it develops, and I think that's the same for <coughs> technology. It does, it, it does progress. And at the same time, I think that having the background knowledge of even simple things like an interactive whiteboard, it's not just going to be used in that situation just there and then. I think that, although, I mean, I'm not suggesting that we're going to have the exact same technology, but it is a starting point which I think the skills can be again developed alongside it but I, I, I think schools tend to have that, that silver bullet approach yes, that Ian taught if, if we get and I've done it I've mm. done it I, I've spent tens of thousands of pounds and put interactive whiteboards throughout the whole school mm. aren't we great mm. and then the sort of implicit assumption is that because we've invested in that te in mm. that technology Teaching and learning will be better, yes. and it, it, it isn't. You just perhaps. I mean, it might be. It might be, but but it's mm. not. It's not. It's not a cause. It's yeah. not a cause. But, but therefore, we're saying that it's not the technology; it's the execution of the teacher that is mm. the problem. So yes. The technology isn't an issue. It's actually yeah. great mm. in the right hands. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a question about about whether it's accessible for educators not to possess technical skills, and I think it's very. You can get quite. You can get quite pessimistic and say, "Oh well, we're never going to keep up with technology, so I'm just not going to bother." And I don't think that's acceptable. No. Um, and I, I'm kind of careful to, to point mm. the finger first of all at me. I mean, based on what I said, uh, although I always feel one step behind technology, I think I do feel strongly that I will continue to build my knowledge. Although I do, on the, uh, although earlier I did say I always feel a little bit behind, I, I, I won't let myself yeah. fall too far behind. We have to work very hard just to stay one step behind. Yeah, exactly. So I, effect, don't you? I do, so. yeah, I agree with you that I do think you have to, yeah, it's, you, you can't not be bothered with technology because mm. it is so prevalent. I think from what was being said, in terms of its use within a classroom environment, I asked somebody else who said that they just, they thought that it was used when it doesn't need to be, which is a sort of the mm. idea about if it's is it actually adding to what you're doing so they were telling me about they saw an art lesson where the children were learning to paint on microsoft paint and we were trying to decide whether this was like are they learning painting mm. skills are they art skills or are they learning digital skills D david hockney's done a whole exhibition hasn't he <coughs> um yes. painted on his ipad and mm. we were talking about it and I, and I think that's the interesting thing for me do they have to paint on an ipad or should m the more the art question would be this is what i would like you to paint you choose which medium and which mm. style mm matches how you want to paint and one of them might be digital yeah i suppose one of the uses of that is often within a classroom environment any sort of free time or golden time whatever you want to call it the ipads and the laptops are one of the first options given out and they're often taken it's, yeah. it's but then it's this balance of whether it's you're using this piece of technology for work or for fun and potentially more as adults we see this slightly more as a work aspect mm. but into a new generation they're seeing them as as fun mm. do, do you think as teachers mm. 
do you think um, technology will reduce your workload? I've actually brought in to show one of my groups my tip lesson plans for when I trained that are all on A4 paper, you know, that I had to write out. Do you think technology will actually reduce your workloads when you're out in um, school and actually looking at creating things? And what about, you know, keeping in touch Arthur mentioned communication earlier. Is this, uh, will technology help with that? What, what's your thoughts? Well, it's certainly much quicker to Google the answer than it is to get the encyclopedia out. Yeah, <laughs> I think it comes back to, and I'm going to echo Damien Hines' words here because he says it's an effective tool and that you're right, Peter, and you say it's definitely not a silver bullet. I think on the aspect of whether or not it affects workload, your workload should, I, I, I think it will stay realistically the same amount that you've got to work. I think just the efficiency can certainly be improved though. I'd imagine that, and you may find this, you may need to pick me up on this because I've never had the experience of writing lesson plans down, Mm. but I think I'd find it easier in typing it up and keeping a lot of aspects, not a lot of them, but certain aspects the same in lesson plans rather than having to continually write it over and over again. And if it's more more efficient, isn't that releasing time for other things yes so therefore and i'm not as well as well-being and things like that but also maybe being more efficient allows you to create different resources Mm. or to support certain groups of children that you might not have had time beforehand or just spend the time finding you could have a thousand books not to rain on your books argument arthur but you could have a thousand books (laughs) and you could put all of that into a 10 minute google yeah and and what one of the things that technology says at the moment is that why are we teaching children facts that they have to hold in their head? Some of you might know, and some of the listeners might know, you know, when was William Shakespeare born? I have no idea, and I do not need to hold that in my head because <laughs> they're all discussing. <laughs> Everybody, everybody's now got their phones out. <laughs> in the olden days. <laughs> in the olden. But can you see, I, I worry that we're sort of like giving children, teaching children facts that they have to remember. And then there's also this misconception about facts. You know, was the Battle of Hastings actually at a place called Hastings? I don't think it was. I think it was at a place called Battle. You know, I'm not a history buff, but Battle or Battle doesn't have the same ring. What was it, Kerry? When was William Shakespeare born? Uh, fifteen, fifteen. Slightly before I was around. So do, <laughs> do you think facts are important for children? Battle. Yeah, I was, yeah. So, do you think Battle and Hastings? Perfect. Yeah. So, do you think teaching children facts is important for the future, or is that something that we should sort of like dismiss and think? Hang on, skills that everybody's mentioned—that's the important thing. Being able to have that skill to look for facts or interpret whether or not it's could be correct. I would say more the latter. It's that ability we can all type something into a search engine. That's yeah. quite. There are very few questions, well, there are questions that you can't just Google, but it's then understanding what this is saying and what that actually means, maybe whether that's a reliable source, whether mm. it's something that is yeah. actually giving us a true answer. But what if you're not near, what if you're not near a search engine? I think surely children have to know some facts. Because if, the, if, mm-hmm. they're, if they're not from a household that can afford technology, if they're not near technology at a certain time, if they're not, and if they grow up and they're, you know, they can't, not everyone can afford to have their own iPad and computers and not everyone can afford to Google surely they need to I think children still should be taught facts because there's something you can get a bit of a buzz from knowing a fact I think you've opened up a can of worms Kerry because I think that the key word in all this is Google because we're now in a society where it's straight away right I don't know what the answer to this is. Oh, it's all right. We'll Google it. Google is now a verb. This is It is, exactly. (laughs) And the thing is uh, how confident are we that the source that we're getting up, as you say, is that as a reliable source. I mean, we should be be teaching our children the proper ways to search um, particular things, how to ensure that we're finding sources sources. that are reliable. It's a bit like in, we had a session, year two, had a session with a, about finding reliable sources and a Dave Gorman sketch came up and it was showing how everything you find on the internet is true and he proved why it wasn't true and how it can be misinterpreted. So I think, again, it's getting the balance right between teaching fact and teaching skill. I well, think there needs to be an element well, that's of both. Why as well as teaching the skill of Google or search engine, you would also, in addition, teach the skill of critical thinking. Mm. Mm. Correct, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I sometimes worry, sorry, that <clears throat> the reliable source is the teacher at the front of the classroom delivering those facts. 
And if that teacher has misconceptions, they have just mm. told that to a whole load of... There's so many times. Like I work at a nature reserve and a woman adamantly saying about how a swan can break your leg with its neck. It can't. No. This is not a thing. But it's you've heard it so many times. It's, it's just there and we're confident in it. But it's, then in that situation, I couldn't change this because she was my seat. She is my senior, yeah. so I can't go back to it. You're wrong. I think, just going back to Katie's point, there's an irony that, that for example, under the, the current um, primary national curriculum, there's a far greater emphasis on specified knowledge than there was in the previous version yes, of the national right. curriculum. But that's 2014. That's mm. right in the Google age. So actually, mm. as, 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 mm. as we're getting to a point where finding out facts like when William Shakespeare was born or, or what an igneous rock is or whatever, we're, we're actually, that, that's what is more being specified what children should know, but in an era where it's far, far quicker just to flip your phone on and find it out. Mm. There's a sort of an ironic, yeah. so it's almost going in the wrong direction. Mm. Yes. Yeah. But the previous national curriculum was, was far more skills-based yeah. yes. than this one is. And, and very transferable skills, which included critical thinking. That was a that was a that mm. was a, a, a core skill across the entire previous national curriculum. Do you think teachers will ever be replaced by technology? No. Yes. <laughs> it does have to interest. It's happened already in China, and they have computers that have a, a that looks like a robot that has a, a mm. screen with a, a, a female <coughs> face on it. But how is uh, how will how is that pastoral help? How can a robot a robot may be able to it surely tell you have to have do something? Have but the social emotional intelligence. No. Well, what it does have is that it has a huge amount of data how to react to certain things a lot quicker than we do. That says if a child says this is a child, this could be helpful. This could be helpful, and it doesn't have any emotional or prejudice or bias that we actually. <laughs> there's an infinitable amount of possibilities as to what the future is going to hold with technology we just can't predict it in any way I mean for all we know technology is going to replace us because it'll for some reason we'll find ways to give it emotion and empathy and that means right teachers you're out the way for all we know people will be able to live forever I mean they're, they're, we, we just don't know and I think at the moment we're okay but I mean Katie looks like she's yes. about to burst. Give, give, give it 200 years time. I, think, I mean, who knows? I think I'm going to be okay for the duration of my career, but you guys, I'm not. I'm not I think that will become more widespread. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think it would be. I think it would be a dark day because I think I think learning is at least in part a kind of social, dialogic interaction. Can you not have a conversation right? with the robot? A genuine one where human emotion and human judgment is, is a part of it. That so is, you feel that it's is... far more edifying to have a conversation with a human being than a robot? Yes. Wow. Ian's going to cry. <laughs> <laughs> I am a robot. No, sorry. <laughs> um, we could, somebody might just insert a card which says, here's all the knowledge for mathematics or science in the future. I mean... Yeah. It, but that, I mean, but then that is, 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 that, that then is, that's just an assimilation of factual knowledge and, and it's, taking, it's taking out that. I mean, we, we are now engaging in learning in, in this, con- this, this conversation yeah. is an act of social learning. Mm-hmm. Mm. If you um, actually, um, if you look at digital learning, what it actually says that in the future, technology will do all the day-to-day mundane tasks that don't need any other thought about because it can replicate it like making cars and things like that that are very precise. <coughs> However, skills that people will need, and I'm, I'm going to have looked at me when I say the first word, will be things like creativity, um, problem solving, looking at you know how to solve problems and innovation, which a computer can never actually do. No, it's um, like in terms like the robot. If it's teaching in China, how can the robot model to the children what they need to do? How can it literally? Can it? Can it physically model how to make okay, a, then, uh, a cake up? It's, so, and, oh. I, and I think it's interesting with physical things, but I mean, I do learn a lot from YouTube. So that's what YouTube's for. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I actually learn a lot from there. And, you know, how much longer 
before when you're watching a video on YouTube, you actually put your VR True. goggles on and everything's oh three gosh, down. I didn't even think about right, that. No, we're up to four K, <laughs> you know, at the moment, you know, and this is. A, I, I think to me, somebody once said, and I need to find out who it was. Said people react three ways to change. They either ignore it or try to ignore it. They complain about it or they see it as a wonderful opportunity to innovate, to get excited yeah. about and look ahead. And I think that's what I feel about the future. Yeah. You know, it, it could be so... Wouldn't it be fantastic VR actually with the children sat on, stood on the deck of the Titanic? I think, but I think in, the, in those things, what, what you're doing then is that you're using technology to allow access to something which is impossible to access. Yeah. And that, that is fantastic. Yeah. Mm. See, I don't even think about that. I think because I... The emotional trauma of the Titanic going down. I mean, if you think about today, we've, we've all, you know, we've got bits of paper around here, we've got notes on phones. We've all prepared for today, which has allowed us to have a... a hopefully an interesting and interactive dialogue mm. but that preparation was facilitated by technology yeah that's mm. true. We, we we had no meeting prior to this and it was fairly fairly not exactly cutting edge technology but but it was still technology if we'd if we'd had to sit here come together and start this podcast with us reading four different articles it wouldn't make great listening and it wouldn't make great learning for no. us but that's uh, even at a fairly simple level I think the technology can actually promote mm. the face-to-face dialogue um, by, by allowing yeah. something to happen beforehand. One thing I can predict, by the way, is that we will be back for a third episode <laughs> of the podcast. Um, I hope, any, everybody who's listening, you've enjoyed the second episode of this podcast of the Education Debate. And were you impressed by that, Travis? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Very good. Very smooth. If you have them, please do consider subscribing to the podcast. It is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well. And do share this around. Come back for future episodes and with friends and colleagues. We've got some wonderful discussions coming up. We've got discussions about Ofsted itself. Amanda, if you're listening, um, please do get in touch. And then we've got some interesting um, episodes about books, TAs, and even independent and state schools. So be sure to check back with us in the future. We hope you've enjoyed this week's lively discussion and we will be back at the end of November. Yeah, soon be Christmas then. Until then, enjoy your teaching and learning and I will say goodbye and my colleagues will also say goodbye. goodbye. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual and do not represent those of the institution where they attend or are employed. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons License 4.0. So if you use any part of the podcast, please give us credit. Thank you.